As I kind of have some introductory comments, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Nahum, because I know it may take just a little bit of time to get there. If you're like me and you have trouble finding those uh, minor prophets, uh, it might be easier to start from Matthew and go backwards. But the, the book before uh, Nahum is the book of Micah, and the book right after that is Habakkuk, if that gives you some reference point. But uh, it certainly is a joy for myself and my wife Shasta uh, to be here with you this morning. Uh, Steve has come down and preached uh, at Grace Church of DuPage from occasion while we were without a senior pastor, and he has certainly been a blessing to us. So uh, thank you for sending Steve and allowing him to do that. And again, thank you for just the privilege uh, to be here with you this morning and to uh, just proclaim the glory of God and, and His Word. Well, before we begin this morning, I do have some rather sobering news to share with you this morning. There is a person with us this morning that I do need to call to your attention. This person is jealous, vengeful, and extremely angry. And while the timing may not be perfect, I find it a burden on my heart and feel it necessary to bring this person to your attention. When I tell you who this person is, you will be likely surprised and even shocked. And I'd like to point this person out to you in Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, if you'd read there with me. Nahum 1, 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. If you haven't figured it out at this point, the person that is jealous and vengeful and extremely angry that I want to point your attention to this morning is none other than God Himself. Oftentimes we like to think of God's love and His compassion and His mercy and grace, and those are all significant qualities of His character. And yet His wrath, His anger, and His vengeance are equally part of His character and His glory as are His love and His grace and His kindness. And so I want to point His glory out to you this morning as we look through these passages. Before we do that, why don't we just spend a brief moment in prayer and commit this time to, to our Lord. Would you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, we do come before you this morning as a church. Lord, I thank you that you have one church in many different locations on this planet. And Lord, it is a privilege to be here this morning to proclaim your word to these people. And I do pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak through my lips, Lord, as I declare your very word. That you would grant hearing, Lord, not only of the ears, but a hearing with the heart. That as they hear your glory and your character put on display, Lord, that that might make an indelible impact on their lives. Help them to understand you in a more clear and vivid way. In such a way, Lord, that it would transform them into the very image of Christ. And we pray this unto your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Well, before we actually get into the text, we do need to give you some of the historical context of Nahum. Nahum penned these words about 650 B.C. to the capital of Assyria, the city of Nineveh. You'll remember that a hundred years prior to this time, who else gave a message to the city of Nineveh? Jonah. Yeah, Jonah had preached there. And Nineveh repented at Jonah's message. But it wasn't long before Nineveh turned back to their old gods, likely worshiping the true God right alongside their idols. And now Assyria, who was the superpower of the world at that time, uh, they they were known as the superpower of the world at the time, and they were known for their brutality and cruelty. About 70 years prior to Nahum's writing, Assyria took captive the ten northern tribes, which are called Israel. And God did send Assyria to punish Israel, if you remember that. But in Isaiah 10, it makes it very clear that they went too far. It was their desire to not only punish Israel, but to destroy it and to take it captive and to take many nations captive, according to Isaiah 10. Now, Nahum probably didn't preach this like Jonah in the city of Nineveh, but rather look at uh, verse 1. It says there that it is a book, or rather a scroll. Likely what Nahum did is he wrote these words in a scroll, and he sent it both to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and to Judah. And so both groups of people would be able to read this letter and profit from it. Um, Now, there's three particular groups. I mentioned two of them, these three groups that were preached to, but we need to have a little bit of information about each of these groups uh, that this letter was intended to reach. The first one was Judah. Now, Judah was the southern two tribes of the kingdom of Israel originally before they split into two kingdoms. And they were not under captivity to Assyria, but they were what they call a vassal nation. And so they had to pay tribute to Assyria. They had a financial burden that they had to fulfill, and all the while Assyria was militarily confronting them and oppressing them. At that time, the king uh, over Judah was the worst king in Judah's history, which was Manasseh. For a short time, you'll remember, Manasseh was removed from his throne when the Assyrians come and they put him in bonds of bronze and put hooks in his nose and hauled him away into captivity. Thankfully, Manasseh repented, and God restored him to his throne. The second group of people this letter was intended to reach was those Israelites, 
who had been taken into captivity by Assyria. And they were now living under captivity in and around the city of Nineveh. They had probably been there uh, approximately 70 years. Many of these folks living under captivity probably would have never even seen their homeland, having been born into captivity under a cruel and brutal captor. So that's, that's a significant part of this audience that Nahum is writing to. And obviously the third group of people that Nahum pens these words to is Nineveh. Nineveh. Nahum sent this scroll to the capital city declaring judgment and destruction. And although he declares that, unlike what happened in Jonah's time, this time Nineveh did not repent. And they didn't repent because they had a fundamental miscalculation of the very person of God. They had miscalculated who he was. They thought God would not judge. They thought they could serve God right alongside their idols. They thought God was passive and that he didn't care about their sin. And so Nahum confronts their miscalculations and he sets the record straight by proclaiming to them the true character of God. And as this scroll reaches our ears and eyes in 2005, we find that we too share some of these very same miscalculations of God. So the book of Nahum becomes a corrective for our day and our thinking today as well. Now Nahum sets out to do this by giving us two correctives to our miscalculations of God. Two correctives to our miscalculations of God. The first corrective we'll find in verses 1 through 6, and that is to behold the revelation of his glory. The second corrective is found in verses 7 and 8, and that is to be careful to respond righteously to his glory. So let's go ahead and take a look here in those first six verses to that first corrective of our miscalculation of God, and that is to behold the revelation of his glory. To behold the revelation of God's glory. Read with me again on chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And I want you to note as we read these, the character of God that's put on display. It says there in verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Let's just focus on that uh, for this time. In verses 2 and 3, Nahum will confront four miscalculations of God by proclaiming to them some very specific attributes of God. We'll walk through these by listing, first, the miscalculation they had, and secondly, by looking at the specific attribute of God that confronts this miscalculation. So the first miscalculation we need to look at is that they thought they could serve God alongside their idols. They thought they could serve the living God right alongside their other idols that they worshipped. But note there in verse 2, the very first attribute that Nahum proclaims to them of God. He says, the Lord is jealous. He is a jealous God. What does it mean to be jealous? What does it mean to be righteously jealous? Well, the definition of that word is very simple. 
It's a desire to have exclusivity in relationship. It's a desire to have an exclusive, exclusive relationship. And there is God had a desire to have an exclusive relationship with the Ninevites. Joshua, if you, Joshua, if you will remember in his sermon, uh, that famous sermon that he preached, Choose this day whom you will serve. He used this very same attribute of God, that he is a jealous God when he confronted the Israelites. He says, Choose this day whom you will serve. Because the Israelites at that time were wavering on whether they would follow God into the promised land, or they would turn back and serve their idols that they once worshipped in Egypt. And Joshua confronts them and he tells them that God is a jealous God, that he will not tolerate them worshipping their old idols alongside the living God. He is a jealous God. He desires an exclusive relationship with Israel and he desired an exclusive relationship with Nineveh. You remember that Jonah preached approximately a century prior to Nahum, and Nineveh repented, didn't they? They entered into an exclusive relationship with God based on repentance of sin and faith in God's promise. God had an exclusive relationship with them, and now Nineveh rebels against God, and God confronts them. And the very first thing he tells them, he says, He is a jealous God. He will not tolerate sharing the Ninevites with their idols. In fact, look over at verse 14 in chapter 1 in the book of Nahum. He says, The Lord has given a commandment about you, speaking to Nineveh directly here, No more shall your name be perpetrated. From the house of your gods, lowercase g, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image, and I will make your grave for you are vile. And so what happens here is the Ninevites turned back to their gods. They rebelled against the true God by terrorizing both Israel, by taking them captive, and Judah. And God confronts their miscalculation of His character by declaring to Him that He is a jealous God. Well, there is a second miscalculation that we need to look at. The second one is is that they thought God would not execute justice. They thought God would not execute justice. And here, back in verse 2, if you look at Nahum 1-2, it says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He's an avenging God. In In the Hebrew, that word is repeated three times. Avenging or vengeance. And that indicates Nahum's emphasis here that God is a God of vengeance. A definition of vengeance is to pay back harm with another harm, with a focus on justice and punishment of guilt. Let me give that to you again. Vengeance is to pay back harm with another harm, with a focus on justice and punishment of guilt. You see, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, had wreaked great harm on both Judah and Israel. Bible history tells us, as I've already alluded to in the introduction, that Assyria conquered the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C. And they took them captive. And they also put Judah in subjection to them. 
oppressing them with military threats and great financial burdens. So great was so great and brutal were they that in Second Chronicles 33:11 it tells us that they bound Manasseh as I mentioned earlier. They bound the king of Judah with bonds of bronze and put hooks in his nose and dragged him away into captivity. And so Nineveh had earned their reputation for brutality well. Now we know, as I mentioned before, that God did, in fact, ascend Assyria to punish Israel. That's in the Bible. He sent them to punish Israel. But they went too far. Isaiah says, Assyria, you went too far. I sent you to be a disciplinarian, but you had it in your heart to destroy and to take captive many nations. And that was not God's plan. They went too far. So in return for their harm, God harms them. In other words, God takes up the position as a divine warrior on behalf of Judah, and He goes to battle for them, and He takes vengeance on Assyria. What a frightening thing. What a frightening thing. So that was the second miscalculation. They thought God would not execute justice. And Nahum confronts them with his character and he says, you're wrong. Our God is a God of vengeance. He is a jealous God. There is a third miscalculation of God's character that Nineveh had. And that is they forgot that God was a God of wrath. Nineveh had forgotten that God was a God of wrath. How quickly they forgotten when Jonah had come and preached through the streets and declared judgment and destruction that Nineveh was going to be destroyed by the wrath of God. And then they repented and God spared them. And now approximately a hundred years later, they have completely forgotten that God was a God of wrath. To be wrathful means that you have fury or anger Wrath is a passion of your heart. It is an emotion. It is a disposition towards somebody. In fact, if you remember the story of Esau and Jacob, Esau's um, the mother, Rebekah, tells Jacob to do what? Flee from Esau because of his what? His fury. Same word here as wrath. His fury, his wrath, his anger that if Esau would have gotten a hold of Jacob at that moment. He probably would have killed him because he was filled with fury. Well, this word for wrath here in the Hebrew is very closely related to the word used to describe the heat of the sun. And we can relate to that, can't we? We can relate to that when we get angry or we get filled with wrath. We can actually feel our heart getting hot or our face gets red and it becomes warm. That's what it means to be wrath, wrathful. It means to get hot. It means to get angry. Heat builds up. And yet the heat of God's wrath is so much greater than our own wrath and our own anger. The heat of God's wrath is more comparable to the heat of the sun. It melts anything and everything that comes in contact with it. Certainly this is the point of Nahum. Look at the very following verses. Look at the incredible heat that is poured out from God's wrath. So intense is this heat that look at verse 4. It says it makes the sea dry and dries up all the rivers. It's quite a statement since the city of Nineveh was banked 
the banks of the, it was on the banks of the Tigris River, a mighty, big, powerful river. And, and God says here, Nahum says here, that so intense is the heat of God's wrath that it dries up not only the Tigris, but all the rivers. Well, look, look down further there in verse 4. It says it causes the most lush and fertile ground in all the Mediterranean area, which were Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon, simply to do what? To wither. It was the most lush ground in all that area. Look at verse 5. The heat of God's wrath causes mountains to quake and the hills to melt. In verse 6 it says, His wrath is poured out like fire. It's no wonder Nahum asked there in verse 6, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? No one can. No one can. God's wrath and His fury are like the heat of the very sun. It is a consuming fire by which no one can stand. Note that last phrase there in verse 2. It says, And He reserves His wrath for His enemies. He reserves His wrath for His enemies. The Hebrew grammar here is very emphatic on one word, and that is reserves. He, they, he reserves His wrath. You see, a long time has went past since Nineveh turned back to their idols and they were in rebellion. Probably decades have gone past and there's been absolutely no repercussion for their sin. And it's frightening for God's enemies because oftentimes when they sin and they rebel against God, you don't always see the immediate repercussions of your sin. You don't automatically see people being struck down by lightning or fire. But that doesn't mean God's wrath is not going to be poured out upon you someday. In fact, it even gets worse. The more you rebel against God, the more wrath is reserved against you. Romans 2.5, Paul speaks to this same point. He says, Because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You are storing up wrath. Just because we don't immediately see God's wrath poured out on rebellion, it doesn't mean that we will escape His wrath. God reserves His wrath for His enemies. And that's exactly what was happening to Nineveh. Even though they were in rebellion for decades and nothing happened, that God didn't pour out fire upon them immediately when they turned away, Nahum sets the record straight. He says, you've miscalculated God, for He is a God of wrath, and He is storing up wrath for you. So He's a jealous God, He is an avenging God, and He is a God full of wrath. They had a fourth miscalculation. And as that, they mistook God's patience towards them as passivity. They mistook God's patience towards them as passivity. In other words, Nineveh thought God didn't care. Didn't care about their sin. They thought He was passive. In the children's notes, I put a little cat underneath that point. A cat sitting in a chair, passive, sleeping the day away. And that was their vision of God. That God is passive. But look here in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, where Nahum again sets the record straight. 
He says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. What is being said here is quite plain. Nahum tells us that even though God is slow to anger, which is just another way of saying that God's patient, that doesn't mean He will overlook His justice. Rather, God, according to verse 3, is great in power. And if you are on the wrong side of that power, you will face a certain judgment for your sin. This remark of God's power would have been a real slap in the face to Nineveh, who in their pride thought they were great in power. And indeed, they were quite a city. In Jonah, it tells us that it was an exceedingly great city that took him three days to walk. They had walls around the entire city of Nineveh, 40 to 50 feet high, and so wide that, it tell, that history tells us that they could drive two chariots side by side without touching each other on top of these walls. Not to mention the incredible military might that Assyria had. They were extremely prideful of their own strength. And so you can imagine what a slap in the face this would have been to Nineveh who trusted in their walls and in their city and in their military might when Nahum confronts them and says, you're not strong. You think you're strong, but I'll tell you who's strong. It is God and He is great in power. Now I want you to look back at verse 3. There's two other phrases we need to look at here at the beginning of verse 3. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now if you're a good Jew these words would have rung a bell because they wouldn't have been the first time you heard these words. In fact, Jonah, he used these words in his complaint to God when he was in Nineveh. I'll just read uh, Jonah 4.2 for you in, he, in his complaint because God took pity on Nineveh. It says that Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Slow to anger. Jonah said he was slow to anger and that's why Jonah was so angry is because God was slow to anger. And yet Jonah wasn't the first one to say these words. How did Jonah know that God was slow to anger? How did he know he would by no means clear the guilty? Because Jonah knew his Bible. In fact, these words were proclaimed hundreds of years before Jonah's time, back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And I invite you to keep a finger in, in Nahum and turn back to Exodus chapter 34 with me. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says in verse 6 there, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And catch this, slow to anger. The exact same words we have here in Nahum 1. Keep reading. In abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression in sin. But, catch this phrase, 
who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now we must understand what's going on here in Exodus to get the full weight of what's being said. This is not Moses speaking these words in, the, in Exodus, but it is God himself. And God is speaking these words in direct response to a request made by Moses. Look up in Exodus 33.18. What was the request that Moses had in 33.18? Moses said, Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And so what God does is He puts Moses in the cleft of that rock and He covered him with His hand as He passed by. Now what's fascinating about this is that Moses never saw God's face. He saw his kind of his afterglow. But what he did do is he heard with his ears. He heard the greatest sermon ever preached in history. And it was a sermon preached by God himself as he passed Moses by in that cleft. And he preached a sermon that revealed his own glory as he declares his character as he passes by Moses in the cleft of that rock. He proclaims his glory. And as Nahum writes these words, go ahead and flip back to Nahum 1. As Nahum writes these words to the Jews and to the Ninevites, he puts the character of God on display and proclaims to them the glory of an all-patient, all-powerful, and fully just God. And that's why I've labeled this point Behold the revelation of His glory. Because there is nothing that will correct our misconceptions and our miscalculations of God than to come face to face with an all-glorious God, full of loving compassion, but also full of holy wrath. Behold the revelation of His glory. That's what Nahum does. He takes God's glory down town, Nineveh, and he says, you have fundamentally miscalculated this God. He is not at all what you thought he would be. He is a glorious God. He is an avenging God. He is a jealous God. He is slow to anger, but in no way will he clear the guilty. We'll go back to Nahum chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. In the last half of verse 3, Nahum's already given us the attributes of God's glory, but now he paints a terrifying picture of God. He gives us a word picture. Look there in verses 3 through 6. Starting halfway through, verse 3, he says, His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Well, we've looked at these already to some degree because so much of this describes the heat of God's anger. So let me just briefly point out some highlights to this picture of God's wrath. First of all, in verse 3, look there. It says that His way 
um, is in the whirlwind. His, his way is in the whirlwind and the storm. A whirlwind simply is a tornado. It's a tornado. That's a picture of God's wrath. I put that in the children's bulletin because it's such a picture of fury and destruction. It's a picture of God's wrath. It's a tornado. And we're all too familiar, even just thinking back approximately a year ago, with the town of Utica completely just destroyed houses, a number of houses, and people lost their life in that tornado. It's destructive, and it's a picture of God's wrath. Note there also in verse 3, it says, The clouds are the dust of His feet. The clouds are the dust of His feet. What happens when you walk on really dry, soft ground if you're out in the middle of a field and it's really dry in the heat of summer? What happens when you stomp on that? Little dust clouds form around your feet as you're running. And here... The picture is of God being so immense and so huge that as He runs into battle on behalf of Judah and Israelite in, in Israel to protect them, and as He runs into battle to take vengeance on Nineveh, the clouds become the very dust clouds underneath His feet. It's an amazing picture of the immense size of God. Let the clouds as you see them today in the coming weeks be a reminder that we serve an amazingly immense God. In no way do we want to be in opposition against Him. We'll look down at verse 5. It says, The mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before Him, the world and all who dwell in it. It's talking about earthquakes and volcanoes here. Another picture of, that's all Nahum had. Okay, that's all he had. He's trying to describe the fury and wrath of God, and he finds those illustrations and pictures in creation. He says, you want a picture of God's fury, look at a volcano. You don't want to get anywhere close to a volcano when it's erupting. It's an earthquake. It wreaks havoc. So in short, in the face of God's wrath, the earth, the entire earth shakes and it melts. And Nahum Look down at verse 6, ask two questions. He asks, who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Well, when we gain this sobering picture of God's power in his wrath, those two questions naturally arise in our mind. Who can stand who can stand before his indignation? What's the answer to that? Who can stand? No one. Who can endure the heat of his anger? No one. When God's anger and wrath rise against us, even our very resolve to endure simply melts away. You don't even have a resolve when God's wrath hits you. Listen to the description that Jonathan Edward gives of man's will when he's faced with the wrath of God. Edward's one of the greatest American theologians to ever live in the mid-1700s, says this, When sinners hear of hell torments, they sometimes think with themselves, Well, if it shall come to that, if I must go to hell, I will bear it as well as I can, as if by clothing themselves with resolution and firmness of mind, 
they would be able to support themselves in some measure, when alas, Edward says, they will have no resolution, no courage at all. However they have prepared themselves and collected their strength, yet as soon as they shall begin to feel that wrath, their hearts will melt and will be as water. However they may seem to harden their hearts in order to to prepare themselves to bear, yet the first moment they feel it, their hearts will become like wax before a furnace. Their courage and resolution will be all gone in an instant. It will vanish away like a shadow in the twinkling of an eye. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Nahum says no one can. This is not a God you want to mess with. An interesting observation there before we leave verse 6. talks about him pouring out his wrath like fire. Excavations, archaeological excavations have been done on the site of the city of Nineveh, which, by the way, still lies in ruins. Um, If you've been following this Iraqi controversy at all, you're familiar now with where the city of Mosul lies. Nineveh is not that far from Mosul. And as they've excavated that site, they've found all sorts of charring and burning throughout that city. And it's a testimony to Nahum's prophecy, isn't it? That God would pour out his wrath like fire. Well, that was our first corrective to the miscalculation of God, and that is to behold his glory. To behold his glory. But it's not enough to behold God's glory and do nothing about it. And that brings us to the second corrective to our miscalculation of God. And that is, we must be careful to respond righteously to His glory. We must be careful to respond righteously to His glory. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. There are two responses here, two righteous responses given in verses 7 and 8 to God's glory. The first one is found in verse 7, and that is we are to take refuge in God and find deliverance. The second one is found in verse 8, And that is, don't reject God and face defeat. And since we've spoken so much about judgment during this time, I want to take verse 8 first and leave you on a positive note with verse 7. And so that first response to God's uh, glory, righteous response to God's glory that I want us to look at in verse 8 is don't reject God and face defeat. Don't reject God and face defeat. Look at verse 8 again. He says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. I trust you're getting the point of the fury of God's wrath against his enemies. It says, With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end. This speaks of the suddenness, 
and the power of God's wrath. It's an overflowing flood. I can't help but think of the recent tsunami when I think of this verse. And be careful to hear me that I'm not saying the tsunami was God's judgment against those nations. It's hard for us to say that because we're not like Nahum. We don't have special revelation telling us that that was judgment and wrath against those nations. We don't know. We know that God is sovereign over it. We know that He will ultimately use it for His good. But I want to be careful that you don't hear this as a comment of God's wrath and judgment against those nations. I think um, that's a terrible thing and certainly um, rejoice in the fact that that's been opening the doors to uh, evangelism in those areas. But what I do want you to hear out of this illustration is that tsunami is a very vivid picture of the utter destruction and sudden destruction that can happen by water. And that's the picture that Nahum wants to draw for these Ninevites. He's saying it's like an overflowing flood. One day you're going to be there, the next day you're gone. That's what it's like to face the wrath of God. It is like an overflowing flood. But I want you to note carefully in verse 8, who receives this wrath? Look back at verse 8. It says that it happens to God's adversaries and His enemies He will pursue in the darkness. That's the key to not facing God's wrath. Don't be His enemy. Don't be His adversary. And yet the unfortunate thing is the Bible is extremely clear that we're all born into sin. That we're all born hating God. We're all born under the wrath and condemnation and judgment of God. We are born that way. And yet the good news is the good news of Romans 5.10. Let me read it for you. Romans 5.10 declares, For while we were yet enemies, we we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we will be saved by His life. The key to not being God's enemy and facing His wrath is to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And that happens through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That He came to this earth. That He lived a perfect life on our behalf. And He took the wrath that was due you and due me for being His enemies. He took that full fury of God's wrath when He was there nailed on the cross. He took it for you. And yet that wrath and that sin and that death did not defeat Jesus Christ. But we know the story. He rose again. And He makes a promise that anybody that would repent and believe in Him would be spared of God's wrath and inherit eternal life and forgiveness of their sin. That leads us nicely to that second righteous response to God's glory. Look back at verse 7, at that second response to the glory of God. And that is to take refuge in God and find deliverance. Take refuge in God and find deliverance. Look there at verse 7. 
says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Think about that, those words for just a moment. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Did you know that even God's wrath serves His good purposes? For His wrath upholds His righteousness. It avenges His holy name. And catch this, God's wrath protects God's children. And that's exactly what was happening here in Nahum, is God's wrath was coming to the aid and protection of His children, and He was taking vengeance on their enemies. He was acting as a divine warrior on their behalf. And so the Lord is good, isn't He? He is good. We'll look back there at verse 7, and it describes God as a stronghold in the day of trouble. A stronghold in the day of trouble. What's a stronghold? It would have meant something both to the Israelites and to the Ninevites. Typically, a stronghold could be one of two things. It could be up in the mountains in the caves where King David had, when, where King David hid when he fled from Saul. But more common of a picture than even the mountains would have been a fortified city with walls all around, with towers all around that so high that as we talked about, Nineveh had walls that were 40 to 50 feet high and wide enough to drive two chariots on top of it side by side without touching each other. I'll tell you the picture that would have come to the minds of Israelites living in captivity under uh, the Ninevites would have been the very city of Nineveh. When Nahum declared, God is your stronghold, they would have thought immediately of the stronghold that they saw every day, and it was the city of Nineveh. That city that when people attacked Nineveh, the Ninevites ran into, and they were safe behind those thick walls, safe from, the, from any enemy, that their military would be protecting them, and the enemy could never penetrate those walls. My friend, that is a picture of your God. He is your stronghold. He is your refuge. He is a God that you can run to in the day of trouble, in the day the enemy attacks you, and you can find refuge in Him. That's the picture of your God. He is a refuge. Well, what does it look like to take refuge in God? We can say that, yes, I know I should run to God in the day of trouble, but what does it really look like to take refuge in God? Let's put some feet to that thought. Well, what it doesn't look like is it doesn't look like the Ninevites who ran into a man-made city with man-made walls and men in their army. It doesn't look like that for they ultimately were trusting in themselves, and it ultimately didn't work. It didn't work. The city of Nineveh was shortly destroyed after this prophecy. But what it does look like is a righteous king named Hezekiah, Manasseh's father. Hezekiah, if you remember the story, you can flip back to 2 Kings chapter 19 verses 9 through 19, 2 Kings 19, flip back there with me. Hezekiah, if you remember the story, 
was surrounded by the Assyrian army in Jerusalem, which was also a fortified city with walls. And they lay siege to it, and they cut off the food supply. And they sent a letter to Hezekiah. Remember, Sennacherib sent his men and says, Give this letter to King Hezekiah and tell him to surrender and become one of our captors. So it's kind of ironic. Nahum sends a letter to Nineveh, but back then it was Nineveh sending the letter to Jerusalem. And it is a frightening letter. Listen to this letter that King Hezekiah read. And and I ask you, what would you do if you got this letter and you're King Hezekiah? You're sitting in your walled city and you're surrounded. And humanly speaking, you're done. You're way outnumbered. You don't have any food anymore. Read this letter in that context. Verse 9, it says, So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. Note the brutality of Assyria as we read this. And shall you be delivered? says, look what we've done to all these other kings. Shall you be delivered, King Hezekiah? Have the gods, lowercase g, of those nations delivered them and the nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haran, uh, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telesar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim? The king of Hena and the king of Iva. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up. Listen, he's taking refuge in God, his stronghold. Listen how what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Verse 14. He takes this letter that Sennacherib gives him, promising him and threatening him of destruction. And he takes the letter up to the temple before the glory of God and he unravels that scroll and he begins to pray. Listen to his prayer in verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline Your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open our eyes. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And what happens the very next morning when the Israelites wake up early because the king took refuge in his God? What happened? It says that an angel came in the night and wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that were ready to take that city dead. God's our refuge, isn't he? He's a stronghold. And Hezekiah serves as such an 
excellent example of one who ran to God as his refuge in the day of trouble. And he well illustrates this second corrective to be careful to respond righteously to God's glory. Hezekiah knew who God was. He had a correct understanding of his character. He beheld the glory of God through the word of God. And because of this, he responded righteously to God's glory. Hezekiah didn't trust his own strength or in his military or the walls of Jerusalem, but he ran by faith to God to be his refuge. And he spread out that letter before God and he prayed over it before the Lord. Such a fantastic example for us today. You know, I know there are plenty of times in my own life, even as a Christian, when I faced a day of trouble. And I have to confess, I have not always responded the way King Hezekiah did. But I've responded in the flesh with fear, with anger, anxiety, and worry because I was relying on my own strength rather than running to God as my refuge. And I don't think my failures are too uncommon. Too often we as Christians go through Christless struggles in Christian homes. We have every resource in Christ to deal with the adversity, and yet we forfeit God's strength for our own. When we get that unexpected bill, we get angry and upset. When we get that results back from the, from the doctor and that medical test and we find out it's bad news, we shrink back in fear and, and anxiety. Even some of the smaller things in life, like a broken down car, a flooded basement, a bad grade on the test, instead of laying those things before the Lord and praying over them and seeking God as our refuge, oftentimes we act out of the flesh and not the Spirit. Why is this? Why is this? It's because we too as Christians often also miscalculate the very character of God. And therefore these correctives that Nahum gives us to first behold the revelation of His glory, to know who He really is, and two, to be careful to respond righteously to His glory, apply to us each and every day. In the day of trouble, whether that day be small or that day be great. Let me encourage you this morning. Be like Hezekiah. Run to God as your stronghold and your refuge. If you're not going through a day of trouble now, I can guarantee that day is not too far ahead. And we need to heed these words of Nahum. They were written to help us find refuge in God and to bring comfort to our souls. You may find it interesting that the name Nahum in the Hebrew actually means comfort. Naham. Even how you pronounce that word sounds soothing. And if you just read the book of Nahum in a cursory fashion one or two times, as I did when I first read this book, I thought, how in the world could Nahum's name mean comfort? There's so much judgment and so much wrath. How in the world could this be comforting? Shouldn't his name be discomfort? Dr. Wrath? 
Professor Anger, Mr. Judgment, that would have been more fitting of a name when I first read this. But his name is Naham. It's comfort. And the only way you can understand how this book can be comforting is to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite living during the time when they, heard, they first read this book. When they were living under captivity to a brutal and cruel captor, Nineveh. As we said in the introduction, likely many of these Israelites had been born into captivity. They had never even seen their homeland, Israel. They've only heard about it from their parents. The king of Judah had been ripped out of his throne with hooks in his nose. Every day that you're living in Nineveh as a captive, you are brought to your very breaking point. It is almost too much to bear. And then one day, something happens that you never thought would happen. A mysterious scroll winds up in the city square of Nineveh. And so troubling is this scroll that rumblings and rumors filter out throughout the city that this scroll has hit the city square and it declares judgment. It declares that the captors will be destroyed and God is a refuge for those who take refuge in Him. And my friend, if you're an Israelite during that time, that's comforting. That's comforting. Because my oppression is going to be relieved. Comfort is on its way. My God is, comf- my God is coming to save me. My refuge is God. My friend, that is comfort. That is comfort. And yet we live in a world, don't we, that is held captive by the prince of the power of Satan and he wages a war against him, even though against us, even though he is not our king and he is not our master, Satan is avidly waging a war against God's people and against God's church. And we have a promise, don't we? Not only that Jesus Christ came back and he died on that cross to take away our sins and free us from that master, but we have a promise that Jesus Christ is coming again. And He is going to free us from this world and from its oppressive attacks and from Satan finally and fully one day. And Jesus Christ, my friend, is bringing us comfort. Our God is coming. He is on the way. Hang in there. Comfort is coming. Our Savior is coming. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's what this text ultimately points us to. Look at Nahum 1.15. Nahum 1.15 says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news. Who's that talking about? You've heard that verse before. It's not been in Nahum. It's been in other places in the New Testament. Who's that good news about? It's about Jesus Christ, isn't it? I'm not making this up, my friend. Jesus Christ is our King and He will free us one day from the oppression and the day of trouble that we face here in this earth. And He is our comfort and every day the enemy attacks us and we face the day of trouble. 
we can run to him like Hezekiah, and we can find refuge and know that he is on his way. He is coming to deliver, and he is coming with comfort. Hallelujah. What a Savior. My friend, that is true comfort. That is true comfort. Well, thinking about these things and the wrath of God and God sparing us, it's only fitting that we do partake of communion. So if the men could uh, prepare for that at the back of the room. As we prepare for communion, I want to just have a few words about communion. Communion, as you know, is a symbolic. It reminds us every time we take it of the wrath of God. It reminds us of the great price Christ paid by shedding His blood and the breaking of His body. And because of the power of such a symbol, we are warned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 not to take this cup or eat of this bread in an unworthy manner. You know, the most significant time I ever took communion was the month after I didn't take communion the month before. And it was because I had a conflict with a brother that I couldn't resolve. He happened to be out of town. But as those elements went by, it was hard for me, but I knew it was the right thing to do. Because the Bible's clear. Do not take this cup or eat this bread in an unworthy manner. Let me encourage you this morning. If there's sin in your life, unconfessed sin, would you take a moment, bow your heads even now, and confess that before the Lord. If you have an outstanding conflict with another brother and sister in Christ, and it's not resolved, I urge you, don't be prideful. But let that cup pass. Let that bread pass. And let that be an incentive for you to take care of that conflict quickly. So next week when you come and take communion, you can take of it with joy. Father, we do come before you. We recognize that this is a sacred time. A sacred time to remember all that you've done on our behalf. And Lord, with such a vivid description of your wrath still in our minds, Lord, we give glory to You and thank You for sparing us from that wrath through the blood of Your Son. I pray that Your Spirit would help us understand the great meaning behind these things and that this would not simply be a ritual that we go through the motions, but Lord, it would draw us to You. We do pray this in Christ's name. Amen.